We are in, going back into 1 Peter, and we are in chapter 3. We have gone through several relationships, uh, going from a general relationship with the world, with authorities in the world, and then going into the intimate relationship within our homes, uh, in our relationship with our employers or with those that persecute us uh, prior to that. And now we move into another level of relationship, and that is in chapter 3, verse 8, is where we're going to begin here. And we're going to take several weeks to do this. I know it's not a lot of verses we're going to be handling, and we're going to be jumping around from verse 8 through the end of the, through um, verse 12 a little bit. And then we're going to go back into another theme uh, that we've already visited, but we're going to revisit it because Peter does, and that will be the theme of suffering and enduring that. That's one of the mega themes of Peter, so you should expect to visit it frequently. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Or I'm sorry, not this morning, but in later weeks. Uh, This morning we're going to continue on that aspect of relationships. This is not the end of it. We're going to be revisiting this um, later on in other chapters. Certainly, particularly with the relationship to leadership in the church in chapter 5. Things like that. But today we want to really focus in, as Peter does, on a relationship within our church. And so in verse 8, it calls on all. And he is obviously referring to all the believers, all those who call upon Christ, and whether we want to centralize that into a local assembly or to the church universal, uh, we can do both, really, and still be effectual, because there's not one way that we treat our local assembly different than all believers. And so let's go ahead and read through this portion of Scripture, and then we're really just going to get into the first element of this because of what it requires of us. It says, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now we have here this really a summation, and the, and the quotation there is a summation really of all our relationships. But we're really focusing in on our relationship within the local church and the church universal. And this is where he's going to summarize this portion of Scripture. Again, it's not he's not going to finish all relationships. He still has some of those to deal with. But he's summarizing this section on relationships in our lives as a representation of your walk with Christ. That you cannot say, I have this wonderful relationship with Christ, and then have destroyed relationships around you, within your home, within your workplace, within your society, and within your church. Um, that those are not compatible ideas in Scripture. Somehow, you can be right with God and wrong with everyone else. Now, does that mean you're not going to have people who hate you and persecute you? Yes, but they're not doing it because they have problems with you, but they should be doing it because they have problems with Christ. And let's be very careful to make that line very deliberate and not confuse these things. Well, I'm just standing for Christ and they hate me because of that. Uh, well, when it's 
the church saying you're doing something evil and they're using scripture, you're on the wrong side of the line, no matter what you claim for yourself. And so we come into this area of relationships and the word finally tells us we're at the conclusion of a section of scripture, not the end of the book, obviously. Uh, but he wants us to fill all these relationships, in particular relationship with one another, with these principles. And they are fundamental, and they are not new to any of you, I don't think. In fact, he's already referenced several of them earlier on in the book. And so they, they're here to summarize and also give us direction. But there's the first one here we want to really dwell on because of how it is ignored. I'll put it like that. Uh, I could say abused, uh, manipulated, but generally it's just simply ignored. And here's how we have removed the value of this instruction. We have, we have just debased it. And if you pick up commentary after commentary, you'll read something similar. And their purpose, I, I don't doubt. I don't doubt that their desire is to try to communicate the principle here, but in doing so, they have destroyed the power of the specific instruction. And so, in commentaries, you'll read, well, when it talks about being of one mind, it's really just talking about unity. And in, invariably, I've found commentators that will say, well, unity does not mean unanimity. And unanimity means of one opinion or of one thought, that we are all thinking the same. But that's really not fair to this verbiage that's not only here but in other places we're going to see this morning in God's Word. And I've taught that myself, that unity is not unanimity. Uh, and when we say that, we need to be very careful to set the parameters of what we mean by that. I'm not talking about insignificant things like whether you think blue is the best color and I think green is the best color. And that's your opinion and my opinion. Um, that's not what we're talking about here at all. When he talks about one-mindedness, it's not whether you think uh, a certain hairstyle is good, I think a different hairstyle is better. Uh, no, we're not talking about those, those insignificant preferences of man that just have no bearing on our Christian living. They, they just don't. You want to cheer for one football player, you, uh, one football team, another one wants to cheer for another team, you may want, want a different sport altogether. Um, and some of you say sports are lost to me forever, you know, especially in these last couple of years. Um, and, and again, irrelevant. It, it, unless it becomes your God that you live and die for, then it becomes relevant to you because you're ignoring God's word. Now it becomes sin to you. And so... When we talk about universe unanimity, um, we're talking about more significant ideas than just your preferences uh, in life. And, and, um, and when we get up to that level, then we need to understand that there should be a growing unanimity among God's people. We should be of one mind, a one-mindedness. And the idea is somehow we have unity and yet we can have all these varying ideas about things that are uh, clearly taught in God's word is, is nonsense. You must have unanimity 
with regard to two things in particular in God's Word, and that is to truth and to righteousness. And we're going to break these two aspects down because all of unity requires adherence to, uh, that is, sharing opinion, sharing uh, commitment to truth and to righteousness. That if we sit here and we start making deals over what is true and what is not truth, we start making uh, compromise on what is righteousness and what is not righteousness, we have completely lost the whole basis of unity, which is unanimity in these areas. We have to have one-mindedness. That we, have, that we are thinking alike in those respects. Now, um, we're going to have some challenges here before us this morning because um, throughout the course of church history, as is evident today, there have been divisions among very godly people over doctrinal issues. And so we exist today as a Baptist church because we stand for a certain amount, certain uh, group of distinctives, we call them, but Baptist teachings that identify us somewhat different than other groups. And some of them we overlap and share with other groups, so, that's, so it's not like we're the only ones that hold to any one of these, but we might be one that holds to all of them. But then that's been kind of muddied in recent years because we've had this big non-denominational movement where you just put a name on the church and no one knows what you stand for because you have eliminated any denominational title. And those mean something historically, um, but that would require you to have some thoughtfulness and some training to know what those distinctions are. And most Christians, I find, have very little concept of the distinctions between them. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. Well, is there a lack of one-mindedness in these areas of doctrinal issues? And again, doctrinal issues is an outflow of these other two. There's just one category flowing out of what we understand to be truth and righteousness. So truth is absolute truth, and we're talking about that which is communicating God's word, that God affirms this as truth, uh, and it is unchangeable. Truth is, is, is established. And what you think about it, what you believe about it, is irrelevant. Righteousness is the application of truth to your life. It is putting truth into practice. Righteousness is activity. Truth is a position. And so these two, again, walk hand in hand. They have to both be in your life. You cannot say, I believe in this truth, and then live in unrighteousness, because you're not applying truth to your life. And that's an evil. When we get down to this, that God hates evil. He loves those who are good. He's going to bless those who are going to do good. He's going to listen to their prayers. We see in verse 12, he's going to watch the righteous, but he's going to be against those who do evil. Well, what is evil? It is to, even acknowledging truth, this is what the Pharisees, Sadducees, the Sanhedrin did. They admitted the truth, and they lived opposed to it. They claimed God's word, and then they lived in opposition to it. And that's why Jesus said, you're whitewashed sepulchers. You look pretty on the outside, but you're dead inside. Because you make this fancy appeal to the truth, but then you live against it. And we call that hypocrisy in these days. But you cannot 
claim access or assent to truth if there is no righteousness. And God looks upon your activity and what is it derived from. And so we see this in Scripture. Uh, For example, in James, we talk about your speech. Uh, Your speech belies something. And, And so he says, well, the speech is the rudder of your ship. It is that which gives direction and it lights all these fires. And so we watch our speech. Well, am I just worried about speech? No. If my inner being is committed to truth and my mind is stayed on Jesus Christ, if I'm applying Philippians and, and setting my mind on things above and not things on the earth, then it will correlate, it will flow out of my life as proper speech. Because I want to honor God because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And I want to have him as preeminent in my life. He will be preeminent in my speech. It flows out of that spring. And it, and it is a disservice to truth to have unrighteousness in our life. And God will not be fooled by that. He will look at both of these things. And so we are going to be doing some investigation here. It, what I'm going to be getting into is not an easy thing. And you might say, well, it's not, rel- it's not that important. But it is because God is measuring out his blessing to use an individual and to churches based upon this premise, that we be of one mind. It is that critical that the body of Christ, universal, be of one mind, that no matter where I go, anywhere on earth, that I will be able to engage people um, with the truth and righteousness. That that doesn't vary from culture to culture, society to society. Because it is declared by God and is and is and is pan-cultural. And so we have to, and yet it's countercultural for all cultures. So we have a, a culture of truth that should define who we are and is the basis of God blessing us. We want God's blessing in our families. There should be truth and righteousness. One-mindedness. Uh, there should be a one-mindedness in our church if we want the Lord to bless us. And we're going to be developing this in terms of not just unity, but unanimity when it comes to this. Now, Baptists, one of the Baptist distinctives that would seem to stand in opposition to this idea and is uh, the distinctive of individual soul liberty. Now, um, you have lived your whole life in a society that has been influenced by that Baptist distinctive. Individual soul liberty was not something that the pilgrims believed in, for example. It was not something the founding fathers of our country really believed in. Uh, Because the Church of England didn't teach it, and that Anglican church that was predominantly the church of the colonies uh, didn't teach it. It was a Baptist teaching. Uh, The Reformers didn't believe it. And you want proof of that, just go to Geneva, Switzerland, in history, and find out what Calvin did to anyone who disagreed with him theologically. Okay? They were beheaded. Why? Because Calvin didn't believe in individual soul liberty. You don't have the right to believe whatever you want to believe. You believe what we tell you, or do you die? 
Muslims don't believe in individual soul liberty. Catholics don't believe in individual soul liberty. None of these were principles that any of these faiths held to. Okay? Zwingli, Luther, none of them believed in that. Though they practiced it for themselves, but then they didn't allow anyone else to deal with that, to do that. And so, you might say, well, if we're allowed to believe whatever we want to believe, and that's individual soul liberty, and that has hugely influenced this country. It has defined it. The Baptists have defined what we mean, and now it's been abused, like so many of the principles our country is founded on. If we get allowed to believe whatever we want to believe, if we have the liberty to do that, that seems to fly in the face of the command of God to be of one mind, uh, if you include unanimity as part of being of one mind, that we have to agree together on truth. They seem to be in opposition, but they are not. You see, just because I say you're allowed to believe whatever you want to believe does not mean that everything you believe is truth. It simply means that I give you, grant you the liberty to believe whatever you want to believe, but God will judge you if you believe error. And if you believe error, it will come out as unrighteousness. The end result of believing in non-truth, alternative facts, um, whatever you want to call those, is sin. It's evil. The result will always be evil. Always. It is consistent. Because you cannot have a lie produce righteousness. It will always produce evil. So you choose to believe whatever you want to believe, and you have the right to do that, but do not complain when you experience the results, the natural results of believing error. Okay? Don't come crying to me because you rejected the truth, and don't go crying to God. He's given you the truth. You say, I know better, and I believe this set of, of doctrines, regardless of what Scripture overwhelmingly teach, I have, I, instead of God defining me, I define God, then you come and it doesn't work out for you so good, uh, you have no complaint. And there are going to be many, the Bible tells us on the end, in the end days, they're going to be coming to God and say, wait a minute, before you send me to eternal lake of fire, wait a minute, look at all these things I did in your name. What does Jesus say the response is going to be from heaven? Oh, no, go, leave. I never knew you. That's the end result of trusting in error. And that's the part of individual soul liberty that we don't teach very well. So we have taught effectively for several, a couple hundred years now in our country that you have a liberty to believe what you want to believe. What we haven't taught very well, and now we have the outflow of that, not just in these last few years, uh, in, in the last few decades, and maybe even over 100 years, we have the outflow of irresponsibly teaching this to the point that uh, people don't recognize, well, if I choose to believe something that's wrong, that's error, and bad things happen to me, Someone's responsible, but it's not me. And that itself is the error. 
But somehow I can blame my parents, I can blame the government, I can blame my neighbor, I can blame the unvaxxed, I can blame, <laughs> I just throw that one in there. Um, I can blame other people for anything happening to me. Even though what happened to me is because I believe what I want to believe. And, I, and we hold that quote-unquote right, uh, and we preserve that, but then we believe absurdities. You follow the absurdities, you abandon truth, you have a right to do that. We will protect that right of you to abandon truth, but then carry with that the responsibility of living your choices. You have chosen error, you're going to live in that error, and that error will always lead to evil in your life. And thus, when God calls us to be of one mind, one-mindedness, he is calling us to understand the truth and to choose for it ourselves. And this is prevalent throughout the scripture, uh, most directly stated by Joshua, choose you this day whom you'll serve, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. That is individual soul liberty. Here's the leader of the nation saying, you guys serve whoever you want. You believe whatever you want. You want to go bow down to Ashtoreth's poles of the Canaanites? That's fine, but not me and mine. Not me and my house. We're going to serve the Lord. And by the way, when you bow down to Ashtoreth poles, you end up sacrificing your children to them and burning them in fire. You lose the blessing of God. You get sent off into captivity. You get destroyed. The Canaanites were being destroyed by God because they did that. And so you choose who you want to serve. That's individual soul liberty. But recognize that when you make that choice, you live with the consequences of that choice. Period. You have no argument against God or other. So when you come to being of one mind, how necessary is it, and to what extent do we need to agree together on truth? To what extent is this truth go? And again, by saying point blank, there should, you don't have to have unanimity to have unity, you deny the fact that we have to agree on truth. Otherwise, you cannot end up in righteousness. You cannot go there. So let's look at some passages, shall we? Let's go to Philippians chapter 2 and just talk about what it means to be of one mind. Let's go to Philippians 2. And I probably only have, I have three or four, but I think we'll probably only have maybe just time for one. I don't know. We'll see. Philippians chapter 2. And again, throughout the book of Philippians, it is all about your mind. And so from chapter 1 to chapter 4, all about have the mind of Christ. Uh, let this mind be you. Uh, think on these things. Uh, the knowledge of, of Jesus Christ. It's all about your mind. Philippians is just focus in on that. That, that, that. that your mind should be sharpened and it should be an instrument that we use in worship. And those that want you to turn off your mind to really experience worship uh, are error driven. And it will always end up where? Class? evil. One mind. Engage your mind. So I could read the whole book of Philippians for you. Uh, we're going to look at a couple of passages here. And so let's begin chapter 2. It says, therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. And you can see the attachment of 
like-mindedness to compassion and love. Paul uses it, and Peter's going to use it in the passage. So we're not going to abandon this principle as we move forward in the next weeks to talk about what it means to love one another. Having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. We're going to stop there. And so we want to have the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ. And one-mindedness, I would contend with you, is the foundation of biblically loving one another. We have divorced that, and we say, well, I have to take off what I know to be truth. I got, I got to somehow compartmentalize and put that on a shelf in order to just, can't we just love one another? And call it Unity. But that is foreign to the scriptures. That idea is error, and it will always lead to evil. It will lead to this embracing one another with disregard to righteousness. And this is what Israel was doing, and God says, I'm going to send you to captivity. Why? Uh, oh, you bring me the tithes, you bring me the offerings, but you won't stand up and say, that's a false god. That is sin. That's idolatry. That's wrong. And you tolerate these things in your midst, even doing them yourselves, letting your wives do it. In the one prophet, says, well, your wives are out there doing these things, and you affirm it by allowing them. You're setting it in the basis of, well, we want to be one country together. We want to be one people of God together. And so in order to do that, we have to unconnect our minds, put it on a shelf of what we know to be truth, just so we can all get along. And that is foreign to the concept of biblical love. In fact, love is founded on one-mindedness, not the other way around. So we have the mind of Christ. Well, what is the mind of Christ in my relationships? It is the idea that I will serve one another. Christ humbled himself became obedient even unto death, that I'm going to be obedient to God. Notice that. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to put aside my own ambitions, my own uh, aspirations, my own concepts of preferences, and I'm going to put those to the side that I may serve God by serving his people, no matter what it costs me. Wow. What if it costs you your opinions? Oh, I have to give up my sacred cow? Yes, because there's no such thing as a sacred cow. You give it up. You ever think about that phrase? Your sacred cows. So things that you elevate, and you think, well, that, my opinion of this and that, and you elevate them higher than the truth, and it shows that you don't have the mind of Christ. That I can give those things up. I can sacrifice those for something that's much more valuable and that God will bless. And this is that one-mindedness. And so we follow Christ in our relationships. One-mindedness with one another is critical. And hence Paul says, listen, keep your mind stayed on Jesus Christ. Keep your thoughts directed on all of these things that are um, going to be beneficial uh, and 
this is what's going to develop you as a people. And we get to chapter 4, and we all know the passage, verse 8 and 9. Brother, whatever things are true, noble, just, it goes through the list. Think on, meditate on these things, things you have heard, learned, received, heard, and saw in me. These do, and the God of peace will be with you. So there's the blessing. But I want you to notice that you don't probably know the context of that verse. The context of that verse is two people in the church that weren't getting along. I want you to know, you want to resolve a conflict between two people in a church that aren't getting along, you have to fill both of their minds with these kinds of things. you got to fill the mind with things that are noble, true, just, lovely, pure, good report, and praiseworthy. you got to fill their minds, meditate on these things if you want to resolve these issues. Let's go back up. And let's just start in verse 2. I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche. To be of the same mind in the Lord. Do you see that? They were not thinking alike. They were in opposition to one another. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Do you see the emphasis in verse 7 on peace? Do you see it again in verse 9? What is the context? The context is conflict. When people in the church were not getting along, they were not of one mind, and they're And that is evil. The evidence of one-mindedness in our relationships is peace. Not, I'll put up with them. And jab, jab, jab. No, it's peace. That the peace of God is the evidence that we have one-mindedness. That we can be at peace and we we can have this confidence in that there won't be this kind of conflict between these two women in the church. Uh, the problem was they were not of one mind, and so he's asking the, the leadership of the church uh, to, and to involve everybody and get it right. You're all, all your names are in the book of life. <laughs> Be of one mind. Resolve these conflicts not by saying she's right and she's wrong, Not by saying some intermediate position that compromises both positions, but by teaching and focusing on our minds on the truth. If we humble ourselves to the truth of God's word, which is what was required for you to become a Christian, you had to humble yourself and admit the truth. You're a sinner, couldn't help yourself, destined for eternal lake of fire, flames, and Jesus, Son of God, died for you, The only way of salvation, you had to apply that shed blood to your life. You had to accept that free gift because you couldn't do anything to earn it. And that's the truth. You had to to submit yourself to that truth to be saved. Now, in your relationship within the church, the fundamental basis of having good relationship within our church is that we all have that same commitment to that truth, that we've humbled ourselves, put on the mind of Christ, to obey the truth. Whether it goes against how I was raised, 
whether it goes against my opinions, whether it goes against my preferences, all of those have been subordinated, they have been made lower because of my commitment to the truth. And that now drives everything. And if all of us are committed to God's word and its truth, and we're going to not only know it and trust it and believe it, but we're also going to live it. As soon as we get to there, God's word is true. I'm going to try to put it into practice. I'm going to try to do this consistently. I'm going to take it for what it says. I'm not going to put in my culture on it. I'm going to derive my culture from it. Once we get to that point, now we can say, well, this is truth. And now righteousness will be born out of it. It will always be born out of it. So that was the context of these wonderful verses we know. Be anxious for nothing. Set your mind on these things. But we forget that that was in the context of a conflict in the church. And the solution to the conflicts in the church are be of one mind. Not that you have to agree on me on whether you should wear a bolo with a plaid shirt. I don't don't know. I was told I should not wear bolos with button-downs. Is that true? Is that a no-no? All my shirts are buttoned down, so I have to abandon all my bolos or something. Okay? Well, we can sit here and have fashion opinions up the wazoo. And I remember some of you were very young. Some of you were here in the church when you were very young, and now you have children of your own commenting that my belt and my shoes didn't match one day. It's like, oh, I don't have any belt. I only have one belt. I do have more shoes, though, I guess. I'm looking now. They're matching today. Are they? I have the brown side, yeah. See, I have a reversible belt for that reason, okay? That's not a conflict, okay? We're talking about, but because the church has been teaching we can have unity and no unanimity, we have ended up with an evil that is separation. We have that division. Because we have forgotten that one-mindedness does call us to unanimity, that we have to think alike, that God's word is absolute truth, never changes, and is full of authority over our lives, and that we must subject ourselves to it 100%. There's no part of my life that I put in a little closet that is insulated from God's word. None of it. And if we have that kind of a commitment, then we can have that one-mindedness, and then, oh, love one another. And because the church has watered this term down to unity instead of unanimity, to the truth and to righteousness, we have division. Because once you abandon the truth, your end is evil. It'll always be that way. And so people look at the church, well, we're so divided. And, it, and yes, that's an evil thing. Why are we so divided? Because we didn't keep one-mindedness on the scriptures. We inserted men's teachings. Men, men, I'm following this guy. You know, I'm a Calvinist. What are you doing? You're following a guy named Calvin. You know, and, and if any of you are Kirkites, please stop that. I don't think any of you would call yourself that. Don't follow... Don't be committed to that guy. 
Oh, that we be committed to the truth of God's Word. And that's why we want you to read this. That's why we get our Word of Life kids to read it, to memorize it. We want you to study it. We want you to know it. We want to teach it because we want to have one mind. It is the core of, and it is the basis of love. This idea that you love someone with re, without respect to the truth is, is foolish. I don't love my wife because I just put blinders on over her faults. You know, true love is blind. What a crock. That's a lie. True love is, has their wide, eyes wide open. They know exactly what they're getting into, and they're saying, I'm willing to sacrifice for that. Yeah, that's real love. Not, I didn't know that. I didn't know it was like that. No, that's not love. At least not for others. It is based upon the truth. I know everything about you, and I love you. Not in spite of, but because I know you. I, I acknowledge this, who you are, and, but I also acknowledge that I'm probably a little bit less than a perfect husband, and so we'll love each other. Not because we ignore the truth about each other, but because we embrace the truth about each other. And this is, when it comes to our relationship with God and with one another, we must embrace the truth of God's word. And so, all through the book of Philippians, we can do a whole study on the book of Philippians and insert it right here, but that would take me like another three years. So we're not going to, so we're going to keep moving forward. Uh, do I have time? Yeah, I have time. Just enough. Take, go with me to 1 Corinthians. And again, you know 1 Corinthians, I imagine. Uh, we just get done with chapter 13. Everyone knows chapter 13. Do you forget the context of chapter 13, the love chapter of the Bible? And it is a church that is in trouble. Why? Because they have abandoned righteousness. Okay? Now we've talked about the truth, and in Philippians it's get to the truth. Meditate on these things, right? All that. And, and then the conflicts will dis dissolve. You'll have love for one another. You'll have peace. The peace of God will come over you. Not because you abandon truth for the sake of, you know, can't we all get along, but rather you all submitted yourself to the truth and therefore you will get along because you all have the same core. Now we come to church with lots of conflict, but worse. There's not just conflict. There's sin, evil, immorality has characterized this church in Corinth. And so it has a lot of things to be resolved and we all go to love chapter, we forget that it's in the midst of a book that's about conflict, about broken relationships within a church. I'm a Paul, I'm a Peter, I'm of, I'm of Jesus. Paul says, what is this about? I'm of Apollos. What is this about? None of us saved you. Jesus is the only one. Aren't you glad that there was one group that was right? But the problem is, they were right for the wrong reasons. They took pride in it. They didn't humble themselves to the truth. So we have all this going on. We have this wonderful love chapter. But I want to take you to chapter 14, the one after the love chapter. Oh, and by the way, um, this is the passage in chapter 12 is what most commentators will go to to say unity and diversity. Because you have to have diversity and unity. Unity embraces diversity. And boy, those are terms we use today way out of context. 
Um, unity, and so you have a hand, you have a foot, you have a, you know, you have all these parts of your body, um, and, and some are more presentable than others, and we have all the diversity things of chapter 12. And that's what almost all the commentators go to to explain unity without unanimity, and they are in error. Why? Because that is not about one-mindedness. That is about the exercise of your spiritual gifts, and you should all have one mind, and that is, I am serving Christ with my spiritual gifts. And if you're not doing it for that reason, we don't want you doing it here, period. Whatever gift it is, doesn't matter. Because there must be a one-mindedness. If you're doing it to pat yourself on the back, to get the acclaim of men, to do whatever it is, then we don't want it here because the mind of this church is that we are going to glorify God in what we do in serving one another through the spiritual gifts that he has given to us variously. That's the one principle of 1 Corinthians 12 that everybody needs to agree on. That's unanimity. If you don't agree with that, your spiritual gift is worthless to the church, no matter what it is. So let's not use that passage to explain one-mindedness. It's not unanimity, just unity. You can have diverse theologies and concepts and principles and still call yourself a body of Christ. No. There's one truth. And the principle of there. But I think we do have a good concept of this in 1 Corinthians, a good example are you ready? You're not going to like this very much, but let's go to chapter 14. Let's go to verse 37. Oh, let's back up even farther. Um, let's go to 33, because that'll be much more fun. I just want to see if I can get anybody's goat today. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Oh, you see that word again? As in all the churches of the saints. Isn't that great? We're not just talking about peace within a church, but peace within all the churches. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Are we at peace with the church in Philippi? Or Philippians? <laughs> Philippians. Philippines, there we go, I'll get it right. Are we at peace with the church in Haiti? Are we at peace with the church in Peru? Are we at peace with these guys? All the churches, there should be peace if we don't have confusion by being committed to various error. Verse 34, let your women keep silent in churches for they are not permitted to speak for they are to be submissive as the law also says. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Or did the word of God come originally from you or was it you only that it reached? Let's just stop right there. What was the problem? It's a very American problem, isn't it? They made truth for themselves. They abandoned God's principles and made truth for themselves, and it was driven by who in the church? The women, apparently. You think that you can just, we'll do it our way. We have a little, we have some, didn't Frank Sinatra some, have a song about that? I did it my way. Boy, that is the epitome of the error opposite to God's word. When churches say, we're going to do it our way. <clears throat> no, this church is going to do it God's way. And hopefully not arrogantly. Hopefully we're humble enough to say, oh, i got some things to work on here. Okay? And 1 Corinthians is a great place to find things to work on. 
people. Okay? They're doing a lot of things wrong. See, find yourself there. Um, the church in the United States is as carnal as it gets. So I'm sure it's here. So we're going to do it God's way. We're not going to do it my way. And Paul used a little sarcastic tone here. Did, did the word of God come to you special? You have some extra dispensation that the rest of the churches didn't have? Oh, no. There's, there's only one truth, and it holds true for everyone, everywhere, all times. That's why he's gone back, and he's even referenced the law a little bit. I can even go back to Old Testament history and tell you this isn't God's way. Verse 37 is what I wanted to really go after. It says, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy. Do not, be a, do not forbid to speak in tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. I want you to notice that what Paul is dealing with is not unity without unanimity. In fact, he's saying, if you don't agree with what I just wrote, you're ignorant. And if you're spiritual, you will confirm what I just wrote. Why? Because I believe every one of these writers of Scripture knew they were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit while they were writing. I don't think that was an accident. I think they knew it. Because all these men had written before. Right? And they knew the difference between how they'd written before and how they were writing now. And that this was under the... the direction of the, of the Holy Spirit, uh, as Peter described it, that holy men of God were carried along by the Spirit as they wrote. And so Paul says, listen, this is the truth. It's, it's driven from God's Word, the law. It's the practice of all the churches. It's what we've seen consistently in, 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 in evidence by God's blessing. And, and so anyone that wants to oppose that is wrong. And you who are, who are mature, who are spiritual, um, should acknowledge what I've written to you is the commandment of God. What has he just invited them to? Listen, you guys are all uh, have opinions about how church should be done, how, what the dress code should be, how you should partake of communion, all these things. You have all these opinions. And obviously, they can't all be right. There is one commandment of God, and you are to subordinate yourself to that. You think you're spiritual, then you should be able to recognize a commandment of God from a personal preference. You should be able to come to unanimity. You should agree together mentally that this is right. And to do so means then we will live according to that, and we'll add to truth righteousness. We'll practice truth together. And so you go through Corinthians and you say, oh boy, you know, some people are sick and dying because they're doing communion wrong. And their love feast is horrible. It's not honoring God. We go in and, and we have the exercise of their spiritual gifts and, and it's being done wrong. And the church is divided over it. They're treating baptism wrong and it matters who baptized you instead of what you're being baptized toward. And they're doing that wrong. Their dress code is wrong. Their hair is wrong. Their morals are wrong. It is wrong, 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 wrong. Why? Because they believe they had the liberty to do it their way. And Paul here in 
1 Corinthians 14, says, listen, you must all agree to the knowledge of God's word. You must all agree, that's unanimity, everyone agrees that the Bible has authority to tell you how to eat, how to dress, how to wear your hair, how to do your communion, how to talk. That's what we just got done talking about, right? When you can talk, when you don't. Um, the Bible has the authority to tell me these things. Once we acknowledge that, now we have unanimity. We have an agreement. And then we are of one mind. And then everything can be resolved. But it requires a great amount of humility to resolve them. That we have to say, if someone shows me something in God's word, even though I've never practiced it in the past, I will practice it from now on because I have agreed that this book is the measure of righteousness. It tells me what is righteous. It will tell me how to practice my faith. It has the demands of me, and I will acknowledge those demands, and I will submit myself to them. Let the mind be in you, which is the mind of Christ, humble himself and obey. Humble yourself to what? To God. Here's God's word. Are you humble enough to obey him? Whether he goes with your opinion, with the with the uh, standards of your culture is irrelevant to you now. Our one opinion is, is that God's word is truth. And living according to it is righteousness. That's what we mean by one-mindedness. And no, you cannot have unity without unanimity on this scale. You must agree. That's why Paul says, you people you better agree with me. If you don't agree with me, you're just plain ignorant. What are they ignorant of? They're ignorant of the fact that truth is immutable, doesn't change. That God's word is true. They're ignorant of the truth. They're well informed about their own opinions and preferences, but they're ignorant of the truth. And that's what we try to resolve here. That's why we have Sunday school. That's why we have our life clubs. That's why we have preaching is because you need to know the truth, but I can't force you to believe it. Believe whatever you want. Choose whatever God you want in your life. But as for me, in my house, which is now just my wife, really, well, kind of Valerie, uh, we'll serve the Lord. Because I have made that choice. I can't make that choice for you. I can't demand that of you. But I can teach you the truth and pray and, and challenge you and, and beg you to choose righteousness, to apply God's truth consistently to your life and to inform you of it. Because Paul says the problem is they're ignorant. They're ignorant of the truth. And therefore, to move forward in First Peter, we have to have this one mind, this one thought. And we must agree on that, or our love for one another, our compassion, our tenderheartedness will be wasted. It will be ineffectual. You'll be just like the world, wandering around, why can't we get along? Well, because 
you hate each other and you kill each other and you worship false gods and you, that's why. There's a truth to that statement. There's a truth that, that can be responded to that statement. There's a reason you don't get along. There's a reason churches have not gotten along. is because we did not go to God's word and said we will have one agreed opinion. And that is that God's word is truth. Not God's word and this guy and this and this. No, just God's word. That's what Paul appeals to. You who are spiritual who have a knowledge of the truth should know and, and affirm that. Stop being ignorant. Ignorance is not stupidity. Ignorance can be fixed. It's fixed with information. Ignorant means I don't know. Stupid means I can't know. I can't learn. So brethren, we are called to one mind. And we have to do a lot of extra work because of what everyone has taught. And by, I, I went through multiple commentaries this week trying to find someone that will say something other than you, one mind does not require unanimity. But they all did, and they're wrong. It does require one agreement, one opinion among the people of God, and that is that the truth is the truth. The truth of God's word is the truth that we will live by, the truth and righteousness. And it is what God's blessing depends upon. Historically, all through the Old Testament, from the garden on, the truth is the truth from God. It must be adhered to if you want God's blessing. But you don't have to obey his truth. You can live... You can pretend, you can do all that, but you're going to live with the consequences. They're yours. Embrace them. Live your choices. Or that we would humble ourselves before the truth and say, whatever it says, I'm willing to obey. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your truth that we have before us today. And we even have the help of your spirit to guide us into your truth. And Lord, we thank you and Lord, we know that out throughout church history that we have had varying degrees of success, mostly failure, in just having this one mind, the mind of Christ, to humble ourselves and obey the truth of God's word. Lord, we pray that we as a church and individuals here and as a church part of the church universal, that we might have this commitment to your truth. And let those who are ignorant of that just be ignorant. Lord, we, we want your peace in our midst with our brethren. We want to not only acknowledge your truth, we want to be genuine, not hypocritical. Lord, help us to live what your word teaches consistently with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Lord, help us to reform our lives, to bring them into agreement with your word, even in seemingly unimportant areas of how we eat, dress, talk. Lord, we know these aren't unimportant to you. We know that our prayers 
require, if they're going to be effectual, require righteousness and truth in our life. Where they are lacking, Lord, please show it to us. And find us ready to receive that correction and instruction righteousness from your word. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.